A View to a Kill proved to be Roger Moore's swan song as Secret Agent 007. But he was to leave the franchise having one of Hollywood's best actors as his main adversary. And pop star Glamour wouldn't just be on the soundtrack, it would appear among the cast too. I'm Stephen Archibald and welcome to my movie podcast. you a warm welcome to They Came From Within Cult Movie Reviews Parting Shots A View to a Kill 1985 The 14th official Bond movie A View to a Kill was to be Roger Moore's 7th and last outing as MI6's top agent Roger's 007 performances had remained impeccable throughout this 12-year period. But on this film, despite his screen presence remaining intact, Roger was clearly too old to play such an energetic spy at the age of 57, not to mention one with such a high libido. He sleeps with four different women in this one. In an adventure co-scripted by Richard Maybaum, and Michael G. Wilson, and one which bears little resemblance to In Fleming's short story, we see Bond clash with a power-mad industrialist. However, Max Zorin is no ordinary mega-rich villain. He proves to be the result of a genetic experiment conducted by a nasty Nazi doctor. Zorin Industries have already created a remarkable microchip, one which can withstand an electromagnetic pulse. The unscrupulous Zorin wants to go much further in his bid to dominate the world of electronics. He plans to flood Silicon Valley. Bond's investigation into Max Zorin commences with his visiting the racecourse at Ascot, where Zorin is suspected of doping his successful racehorses. This gives James the opportunity to work with the racehorse trainer, Sir Godfrey Tibbet, who happens to be another MI6 agent. Tibbet was played by the splendid Patrick McNee, the Avengers John Steed himself. From the Avengers and its spin-off, The New Avengers, he was the fourth star to appear in a Bond movie. Honor Blackman was in Goldfinger, and both Diana Rigg and Joanna Lumley were in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. We briefly get to see Dolph Lundgren. He puts in his first screen appearance as a KGB heavy. Dolph was dating Grace Jones, one of the film stars at the time, and the director John Glenn realised that he could convincingly fill the role 
of a Soviet bodyguard. The main Bond baddie, Max Orin, is played by the great Christopher Walken. Before Javier Bardem and Christoph Waltz, Walken was the first Oscar-winning actor to play a chief Bond villain. My music idol, David Bowie, was originally supposed to play Zorin. He had accepted the role in 1984, but the part evidently proved not to be to David's liking. It is said that both Sting and Rutger subsequently turned the part down. It's funny how the Zorin character has the platinum blonde hairstyle and dress sense of David Bowie from the 1983 era of his Let's Dance album. Sticking with music giants, Grace Jones was cast to play Zorin's lover and bodyguard, Mayday. The producer, Cubby Broccoli, was taken by her performance in Conan the Destroyer. Grace's powerful presence provided the production with a shot in the arm. Unfortunately, she managed to rub Roger Moore up the wrong way. For one thing, playing loud music in her dressing room whenever he tried to have an afternoon nap certainly would not have helped. Grace had more or less claimed she wanted to stay in character the whole time. 1985 was quite a significant year for Miss Jones. She got to play a Bond woman and she released the Trevor Horn produced concept album Slave to the Rhythm. And I'm not alone in believing that the Slave to the Rhythm single is one of the very best songs from that decade. Sheer class from Ian McShane's spoken intro onwards. Continuing with the topic of music, it is said that Duran Duran have a drunken John Taylor to thank for securing the theme tune. Reports say the dashing bassist approached Cubby Broccoli at a party and exclaimed, when are you going to get someone decent to do one of your theme songs? It just so happened that the filmmakers wanted to attract the younger MTV generation to the franchise and they felt that hiring Duran Duran would help them do so. Although John Barry had his reservations about working with a popular band, this new approach triumphed. The theme tune made it to number one in America and to number two in the UK and Simon's quip at the end of the song's promo video, Bon, Simon Le Bon, has a hint of irony about it. In the movie, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it's mentioned that James Bond has an ancestor called Otto Le Bon. Stacy Sutton, the young geologist who helps Bond in his quest to stop Zorin, 
was portrayed by the very beautiful Tanya Roberts. It was the former star of Charlie's Angel's appearance in the 1982 fantasy The Beastmaster, which persuaded Broccoli to cast her. Tanya was the last leading Bond woman of the Roger Moore era. Ironically, she was also the first one to pass away at the age of 71 on the 4th of January 2021. Priscilla Presley had come close to playing the part, but she was tied to her contract on the mega popular TV series Dallas. Bo Derrick and a then unknown actress called Sharon Stone were also in the running for the role before Tanya sealed it. The KGB agent Pola Ivanova is another striking woman 007 has a romantic involvement with. She's portrayed by the voluptuous Fiona Fullerton. This character had to be rewritten by the writers after Barbara Bach refused to reprise her role as Anya Amasova from The Spy Who Loved Me. I should add, Maryam Darbo, who would play the female lead in the next Bond picture, The Living Daylights, had auditioned for this part. Hailing from the Republic of Ireland, Alison Doody is another talented woman who appears in this movie. She plays Jenny Flex, a Zorin employee and Mayday's close friend. Alison was 18 years old at the time, making her the youngest ever Bond woman. In 1988, she got to act opposite future Bond, Pierce Brosnan, in the moody Irish film, Taffin. And she acted with Bond legend Sean Connery in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade in 1989. It wasn't just Roger Moore who left the franchise after this movie. We also saw the departure of the marvellous Canadian actress Lois Maxwell. She was in every official Bond film up until this one, spanning 23 years. Lois had suggested to Albert R. Broccoli that she could continue in the series if she was promoted to the position of M. Unfortunately, Broccoli declined this idea, believing that the public wouldn't want Bond to have a female boss. His daughter Barbara and stepson Michael G. Wilson were more enlightened when they cast Judi Dench in the role of M in 1995's GoldenEye. Shooting took place between the 1st of August 1984 and the 16th of January 1985. Despite receiving mixed reviews, A View to a Kill was very successful at the box office. On a budget of 30 million, it made $152.4 million. As a way of thanks to the city of San Francisco, where a sizable chunk of the filming took place, it received its world premiere there on the 22nd of May, 1985. Sure, 
the movie doesn't have a stable narrative structure and although Christopher Walken and Grace Jones made fabulous villains their characters deserved sharper dialogue no matter there remains much to enjoy here as in any Bond film soak up the glamour and the escapism I'm Stephen Archibald and thanks very much for listening to my podcast They Came From Within cult movie reviews hopefully you'll join me another time look after your good self and bye bye